early in the spring when we round up the dogie. We mark them and brand them and bob off their tails. Round up the horses, load up the chuck wagon, then send the dogies out on the long trail. We'll be tired, I owe long, you little dogie. It's your misfortune and none of mine. His friendship with Crane had been a strange one. Out in the world, they would almost certainly have been kept clear of each other. But in the university, they had fought together in a common cause. Both, with all their might, had resisted the new commercialism that aimed to show results that was undermining and vulgarizing education. The state legislature and the Board of Regents seemed determined to make a trade school of the university. Candidates for the degree of Bachelor of Arts were allowed credits for commercial studies, courses in bookkeeping, experimental farming, domestic science, dressmaking, and whatnot. Every year, the regents tried to diminish the number of credits required in science and the humanities. The liberal appropriations, the promotions, increases in salary, all went to the professors who worked with the regents to abolish the purely cultural studies. Well, uh, welcome to the American Writers 100 Pages at a Time podcast. In this episode, we'll be beginning our look at The Professor's House by Willa Cather. And what I just quoted to you is from the later, so about halfway through that novel, um, a section in which our professor is lamenting the changes in higher ed. I, I found it cute when I read it because so much of, of the current anguish in higher ed is involving the same issues that Will Cathy was writing about 100 years ago. So it's a little bit comforting um, on the one hand because you see professors have always kind of been, or the academia has always been struggling to keep the humanities alive in an era of professionalism and professionalization of higher ed. Um, but it also shows perhaps on, on the other hand that there's maybe an, a constant sort of panic about the fate of the humanities. And it's, it's kind of been with us for, for quite a while. Um, but anyways, on to the professor's house. I'm gonna look at this in two parts. In fact, the novel itself is in three sections. Uh, the first section is about 100 pages, and the second section's you know, maybe around 70 or so. The second two sections are 70 pages altogether. Really, what we have here is a nested story. And in fact, it's almost like a short story nested around a novel about this professor. And, and we'll, you know, the first part really sets up this professor, his house, his family, his two daughters, his sons-in-law, and, and really lays down the foundation for the core of the story, which is Tom Altman's story. A story of a student of his, someone he has a lot, the professor and the family had a lot of affection for, um, but who died, and there's some kind of enduring legacy that he's doing with partially coming out of dying quite young, um, but there's also, you know, some in his scientific achievements, um, and how that's resolved is really in parts two and three. Actually, part two just deals with a vignette of Tom Altland's life that is key to the story, but we'll get to that next time. Today, we're just going to talk about the first part of the novel, which is the bulk of the text, and it deals with our titular professor, um, a man named uh, St. Peter's, Professor of St. Peter's, Dr. St. Peter's, and his, and his family, and, his, and changes he's undergoing in his life as he approaches middle age.
Well, let me start by talking about these these characters, including the professor. Um, the I don't know. I, it seems to me the main character here is actually Tamil, and he's the, the core character. But we don't really meet him. Uh, he's dead when the novel opens. Um, but he was. Um, I'll start with him. Actually, he he was a a young man who met the St. Peter family uh, while still kind of entering college. He was a bit of an autodidact coming from a working class background. He has a lot of interest in, in pottery from the West. Uh, his academic interests weren't really the most profitable. Um, he was kind of undisciplined in a lot of ways, like his Latin wasn't good, his math wasn't that up, up to speed, but the professor kind of aids him and, and he becomes a friend of the family, very, very close, very, very close. So much so that when they build a new house, actually, I'm not sure if the professor's house refers to the older than new house. We'll get to that. But the new house that he buys with money he made from an academic prize he won, uh, he actually calls Outland. He names it after this guy. So we'll know more about him as the novel goes on, but he is a scientist. He ends up becoming a scientist and he develops uh, with some faculty in the university. A man named Dr. Crane helps with this in some ways. Actually, his advisor in the physics department, they develop a gas and eventually he produces a vacuum of some sort of kind of machine that he patents, and that patent leaves his estate with significant funds. Um, but he dies in the war. He dies in World War I, uh, leaving essentially his, his estate to Rosamond, who is the professor's daughter. And his hus her, her, her husband is going to end up being like basically the executor of that estate. And, and that's going to be a major plot point in, in, in the novel, especially in the first half. Um, so anyways, that's Tom Outland. The professor uh, is Godfrey. I think it's Godfrey St. Peter. He usually just goes by the professor or Mr. St. Peter. He's, he's in his 50s. He's getting up there. He's kind of achieved his academic goals in life, too. So there's a lot. He's kind of his, he's, on this, he's at that point where he's sort of done with life in some ways. I mean, it's not like old people have no function. But in the, this character seems done in a lot of ways. And the death of Tom Outland, I think, accelerates that kind of feeling that there's really nowhere for him to go. In fact, he, he doesn't even really want to move into the new house he builds with the money from his academic prize. He actually wants to continue to work in his old house and the study in his old house. Um, but what does he do? He specializes in like Spanish explorers and the Spanish frontier in, in the Americas. And he's written like an eight-volume work on that, right? And he's for, for about 10 years, he's been working on this eight-volume work and it's it's so good it wins him a prize which brings in a lot of money to the family and that's what he uses to build this this new house and he kind of rises up in status there's even a joke later on where uh when the new academic term begins he's he's given an eight o'clock class even though he never liked them before and the justification of the dean was that well he can afford to take a taxi to work now uh, so he can come early he doesn't have to uh, walk necessarily um He's got two daughters, he's got a wife, he's got his kind of second house. So in this way of, of what a man is supposed to achieve in his life, he's kind of accomplished it all. Career-wise, a little bit of fame in his profession, he's, he's a master of, 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 of history. He's, you know, he's got that recognition, he's got the two daughters, the two daughters are married off, and it's not clear what there's left for him to do, except maybe just write more history, but I think he's still maybe working on the last volume where he's come to the end of his project. Um, and he doesn't really have another project in mind. So he's kind of in a midlife crisis, if, if you will. And I think that's an interesting part of, the, of this story. Um, then he's, you have his wife, Lillian St. Peters. 
she's uh, not maybe the most well-developed character. I don't think Willa Cather's energies are on Lillian uh, St. Peter. She's, she's fairly supportive of him, but she's the one who kind of wants to, to upgrade their life, move into this big house, and, and is a bit chagrined that her husband wants to remember, stay in the old, old house to work. Another character we have is Augusta. Augusta is like the servant of the family, technically a seamstress. I don't know how a seamstress would have a full-time job with a family this small, but maybe it's, you know maybe she does other work around there. But she's kind of attached to the family, and especially attached to the old house, and that's that's her role. And she's she has kind of a close relationship with the professor. They often have conversations, especially about the art in his old in the in in the, in the house. I think the old house. So she's, she's an important character. Then we have the kids, and a lot of the first half of the novel revolves around the two daughters and their husbands and their, their interplay. So the older daughter, but the one who marries later, so she's been married last time, but she's older, is Rosamund, or often just Rosie. She's very, very status conscious. She's very fussy. She, she needs money. She's that kind of of character um, and she marries a man who sort of can provide that um, Louis Marcellus Louis Marcellus is his name and he ends up being kind of the man he's he kind of manages the estate of Tom Outland because actually I think it's Rosamond who inherits the estate um, and there's a, a really a strong suggestion that Tom Outland was going to marry one of these daughters um, early on but with, with his dead you know that doesn't happen so he kind of runs that estate and, and kind of almost semi-privatizes it you know and that, that's a conflict later on is like what's the proper use of these funds should it go somewhere else than it is um, and he's also building a new house so like just like the professor built a new house he's building a new like a, a, a building a new house and and he's going to put like all that stuff and lab in there um, so he's kind of a very worldly character. Uh, then we have the younger daughter, Kathleen. She's a little more enigmatic of a character. She's more intellectual, a little more thoughtful, a little more sympathetic in a lot of ways. She, for instance, at one point in the novel, she hears that Augusta lost essentially her life savings in a, in a stock market scan that Rosamund and Louis Marcellus kind of got her into. And Kathleen feels really bad for this. It's like $500, which is a huge amount of money for her. So she gets her family, she basically takes the leadership of getting her family to bail out Augusta. Uh, and, you know, and she seemed to have a very, very close relationship with Tom Altland as well. She's married, though. She's married to a journalist named Scott McGregor, who also is, you know, as a journalist, as someone a little bit more intellectual, he finds a lot to like about the professor, and he likes to go to his lectures and hang out at the university with him. So he's a little bit, that side of the family is a little bit more on professor's side, and it seems that Rosamund Louis Marcellus is maybe a little bit closer to Lillian St. Peter. Um, and, and that's the characters. There's, a, there's another side character, which is the, the Crane, Dr. Crane and his wife. Dr. Crane is a sickly professor who was Tom Outland's advisor and kind of um, mentor during his early time as a, during Outland's early time as a professor. And he played some role in the development of the gas that made Tom Outland famous and rich, or at least rich, through that invention. And, and he's sick and dying and the family's fallen on hard times. 
and you know the issue comes like how much of this patent money should have been given to them. Um, he's also the guy mentioned in that opening quote who's, who kind of doesn't see academia as something for profit or commerce. I and mean, he's kind of in that way akin to the professor who is a little bit more sentimental about academia. Uh, Dr. Crane, for instance, you know, he's a physicist, but most of his department has moved on to basically corporate science or science for patents and developing patents. And the fact that he kind of did more peer research stabs him in the back later on because you know, he doesn't even think to get his name on the patent that, that Altman uh, gets for his invention, you know, at least for, for some of the profit, you know, given his role he played in helping to develop it. And because of that, his family becomes increasingly destitute. Um, so anyways, that's the main characters. And it actually tells you a lot of the story of the first half because we're just kind of following uh, Gottfried St. Peter kind of in as he enters into this midlife crisis, sometime after Tom Altman has died, but after he's, he's kind of gotten his prize, he has, he's gotten his prize for his, his historical research, he's gotten this money, he's building this new house, um, his children are married off, you know, he's trying to, but a big tension here at this point of his life is, is one, I think it's, it's not directly stated as much, but it's hinted at, and that is really his career, it's not clear where it's going to go. We've already seen that he's not happy with how academia is becoming more commercialized and professionalized. And he's really stressed out about that. But, you know, and again, I don't think this is directly stated, but I felt it a lot. Is like he doesn't really have a plan for his research or what his career is going to go when he finishes his eight volume work. Right. It's, it's like that's his life work. It's this thing, but he's done and he's only in his 50s. So what, what's to what's to happen to his life at that point on? Um, but what else? He's upgraded the house. His children are married off. So, you know, there's not that much left for him. He's got a lot of tensions with his sons-in-law, particularly Louis Marcellus, who really doesn't fit with him emotionally or intellectually. They seem to be of different worlds. He seems to be more representative of the, the, the more modern commercialized world. In this way, I do think there are parallels between this novel and A Lost Lady. And, and some of Will Cather's other works about the frontier, although this novel isn't about the frontier. It's, it's, it's set near Chicago, because they can travel to Chicago for like conferences and lectures and stuff. Uh, they mentioned like getting a house near Lake Michigan, so there's somewhere, somewhere near Chicago. But you still have this idea, uh, like I think the whole conflict in The Lost Lady between the old heroic age of the frontier versus the brutish, more commercial aspect of the frontier, you know, I, I think we still sometimes idealize that this, this kind of classical vision of the frontier a little bit too much. But here it's like kind of reset in, in maybe academia or reset in the tension between the two sons-in-law, the journalist, who, even though that's more of a regular job, it's, it's not like the prof he's different than the professor in that way. But, you know, as the old saying goes, you know, journalism is the first draft of history. They're, they're on the same page, I guess, in their, their conception of, of what's valuable in life being more intellectual and Kathleen definitely is much more thoughtful and reflective kind of person than her older sister or her brother-in-law Louis, Louis Marcellus both who are very commercial very much focused on status very focused on, on consumerism they care a lot about money and in fact throughout the whole first part of the novel 
while we see that Kathleen and St. Peter had a really, really emotional relationship with Tom Altman, Rosamund and Louise Marcellus's relationship to him seemed to be much more commercial, much more, uh, yeah, just not as, as deep and meaningful as the relationship that is implied was there between Kathleen and 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 Saint and, and Mr. Saint Peter, Doctor Saint Peter, with with Altman. So I think that same kind of conflict is is at work in this novel, even though it's set in a very different world and the frontier really isn't part of the story in any direct way or, or any way that I can notice at all. Um, so I think that that sets up I think what's going on in this novel. I. I really liked it. I think for me, the most striking part of this story and the thing I enjoyed more is is just the, the is the story of a, of a professor kind of coming to a point in his career where he really doesn't know what the future of the profession is because it just rings so true to how, you know, academia has become. I mean, it's much, much worse now with the systematic exploitation of academic labor through graduate assistants and, and adjunct faculty. But the, the other issue he's talking about here, which is the kind of the commercialization, the professionalization of school, the transformation, you know, the transformation of higher ed from being something about higher levels of, of, of understanding, uh, academic rigor, philosophy, you know, really pushing the pushing people's conceptions about themselves and the world to another level, being replaced with just like job training, right? Um, we still have people wringing their hands about that now, even though universities have become essentially job training. Whatever remnants of the humanities are left are just there. In fact, all of the predictions of the professor here and of Willa Cather in, in narrating the professor's story have, have basically come true. I mean, if the professor saw the university today, he'd be horrified, I'm sure. So anyways, the plot, you know, there's not that much of a plot going on because it's kind of just following this professor around. The part one, which is called The Family, so it's not just about the professor, it's really about the whole family. It's in 17 chapters. They're all quite short, obviously. Um, you know, most are just a few few pages or so. Um, but, you know, the thing we're, we're introduced first to the professor and, and the new house and and what this house seems to mean for him. And I do think it, what it means for him is somehow a major shift in his life, right? Or a closing a door on some kind of projects in his life. Kind of like the closing the door of the frontier almost. If we were to think about Willa Cather's earlier works. Uh, also in here is described like the old house and the old house being kind of run down, how the stove did, you know, didn't, really, didn't allow heat to certain rooms. It's, it was kind of... Not, not quite the, the, the domain of an aesthetic, but or aesthetic, but uh, you know, you understand why the wife maybe wanted to to, to use the the earnings from that literary prize, that historical prize, to to upgrade the house. But he likes it. There's something about that that he likes. And at one point, this is right in chapter one, Willa Cather writes, when he remembered his childhood, he remembered blue water. There were certain human figures against it, of course. His practical, strong-willed Methodist mother, his gentle, weaned-away Catholic father, the old Canute grandfather, various brothers and sisters. But the great fact in life, the always possible escape from dullness was the lake. The sun rose out of it. The day began. There was like an open door that nobody could shut. The land and all its dreariness could never close in on you. You had only to look at the lake, and you knew that you would soon be free. It was the first thing one saw in the morning across the rugged cow pasture. 
studded with shaggy pines, and it ran through the days like the weather. Not a thing, of, not a thing thought about, but a part of consciousness of itself. And, and that kind of hints at, I guess, what he's sort of longing for in life, and it's something he finds in Tom Outland. And I understand why I was reading the Wikipedia on this novel, and I can understand why some people have maybe pursued a, a queer analysis of this. Is It's maybe something you don't notice unless you are, are kind of paying attention to it or, or, or maybe have that seed planted. So much interpretation is that way, right? When someone mentions it to you, it's hard not to see. Uh, is that there may have been some kind of sexual tension between or even you know, some kind of view, even more, I don't know. There's a lot we don't know about Tom Outland, especially in the first half and his relationship with St. Peter's. But that may help put this kind of midlife crisis he's facing in context is he's just lost someone who's very meaningful to him, right? And the people who have replaced it, the, the brothers, the sons-in-laws, aren't quite what he wanted, right? John, Scott McGregor is, is a little bit more sympathetic than, than the other son-in-law, Louis Marcellus. But he's still a bit of a sick, a bit sycophantic. He's not cool. He doesn't have that spark that Tom Altman seems to have had, and he's missing that. He's missing, you know, he's he's losing out in his old house where he developed his magnus, magnum opus. Um, now, at the end of chapter one, his wife kind of calls him and and talks to him and says, you know, like, what would you have done with this prize money you've got if not built a new house? And here's what he replies. Nothing, my dear, nothing. If with that check I could have brought back the fun I had in writing my history, you'd never have gotten your house. But one could, couldn't get that for $20,000. The great pleasure don't come so cheap. There's nothing else. Thank you. End quote. Now, that's not what I think Lillian St. Peter or Rosamund, Rosie St. Peter or Louis Marcellus would say about money. For them, money is a means to, to achieve some degree of happiness or status or whatever. But, but the professors of a different type, right? And we actually are privy to, to uh, a lecture that he gives to his students. And I'm bouncing around the text a little bit, but there's a point where I think it's McGregor, his son-in-law, goes to the university to peek in on a lecture. And very conveniently, he peeks in just at the moment where a student asks a very apt question, a very opportune question. Uh, and that is... You know, what doesn't technology, the question, the student asked something like, doesn't technology you know, advance civilization? And St. Peter's response to this is, is clearly no. Maybe, maybe I'll, when we get later, later, I'll come back to that and maybe quote that bit because it really does, I think, get to the heart of what he thinks is true in life. And there's something kind of a human spirit that, if anything, is corrupted and ruined by technology, certainly not advanced by it. All technology does is kind of make us maybe a little bit richer, a little bit more comfortable, but this doesn't really make us more human in any way. He, he definitely would not appreciate the transhumanist arguments that, that are, are so popular these days. So in chapter two, we're introduced to the sons-in-law. Basically, a dinner party is the device. Willa Cather did this in A Lost Lady 2, and thinking back, I wonder, she must have done that in her other novels as well, but it's striking that in these two novels, just two years apart, dinner meetings become the way of kind of introducing characters. She did it in that novel and she did it in here. Um, so again, it's a, it's just a very convenient meeting for us to kind of meet all these, these people. But what we learn is right away, very strongly as suggested in this, that he does not like his sons-in-law, at least not compared to Tom Holland. Right now, maybe if Tom Outland never existed or never met them, 
or didn't die, you know, he would have a very different outlook about these people. But it's you, you it's kind of like the father doesn't have the son-in-law he wanted. And I know there's many fathers out there who probably feel that way, who never quite like the the men their daughters marry or, or end up with. But, you know, for, for whatever you know reason, this character, this professor, really does feel the loss of Tom Outland all the time and he only feels it more when these sons-in-laws are, are visiting. Um, now chapters three and four kind of kind of develop two themes that have already been established. One is like his professional life and one is his relationship with the sons-in-laws because in chapter three his Lillian and, and Godfrey sort of fight about the sons-in-law. Basically Lillian's saying you're too hard on them. But it really, again, we're reminded that Altman should have been the son-in-law he had. Um, but then he decides to basically get away from this family, get away from the sons-in-law, and, and move up, move somewhere else. And the place he chooses to move is the old house, which was going to be rented out. I guess the family never owned that house. But he talks to the landlord and says, like, I want to rent the house because he wants to continue to use his old study. right? He, you know, he, It's not clear what historical research he's doing at this point because it's eight-volume work on the Spanish explorers or whatever is done but he still wants to be in his old study and it, and it kind of fits him like an old glove and he actually tells Augusta at one point that you really can't replace an old study that you're, you're used to so he rents the whole house just really for one room even though the rest of the house is kind of going going to going to hell um, but and then the other thing we, we, we hear a lot about is this the, his feeling about where academia is going right and part of this is introduced to the fact that he has uh, a professional rivalry with with another historian. Um, and kind of we get into the politics of academia, which is something that maybe Willa Cather was privy to or interested in at least, because it comes up a lot in this novel. Um, so if you are interested in though that aspect or the politics of academia or the the kind of the the, the question of professionalization of higher ed. You know, check out this novel because at least read parts of it because it, it really does give an interesting perspective on, on this. And, and it's a reminder of how long this has been a struggle. Uh, but anyway, so this was so this guy, is, this guy he has kind of a bit of a rivalry with is called Langtree. And Catherine writes, when young Langtree first came there, his specialty was supposed to be American history. His uncle was president of the Board of Regents and very influential in state politics. The institution had to look to him, indeed, to get its financial appropriations passed by the legislature. Langley was a Tory in his point of view and was considered very English in his tone and manner. So his lectures were dull and the students didn't like them. Every inducement was offered to make his courses popular. Liberal credits were given for collateral reading. A student could read almost anything that had been written in the United States to get credit for, for it in American history. And then... He gets some more details on this, and we actually find that he, well, basically this Langtree uses his influence in his family, his connection to politics, to basically make it impossible for St. Peter to get his sabbatical that he needed. And instead he has to kind of work over the summers and take an extended summer vacation to get his, his writing done, right? And the argument being used to kind of deny him this is that his books, quote, weren't strictly textbooks, end quote. Which is funny because isn't that like now if you just publish textbooks, I think it kind of it's against you, right, in, in, in tenure. You're supposed to do monographs, original research or something. But I don't know. For, for whatever reason, he uh, 
had this conflict with him. And this carries on right into chapter four, uh, a little bit more Mac at a, at a, at a larger level, because what, what's happening in this department, it seems, this tension between Langtree and, and St. Peter, has this reflection in the broader politics of academia across, you know, that's affecting the whole, you know, field or the whole, the whole higher, or the whole, the whole university world. Quote, on Monday afternoon, St. Peter mounted to his study and laid down on a box coach, tired out with his day at the university. The first few weeks of the year were very fatiguing for him. There were so many exhausting things besides his lectures and all his new students, long faculty meetings in which nobody was, was ever frank and always the old fight to keep the standards of scholarship to prevent the younger professors who had a sharp eye to their own interests from farming the whole institution out to athletics and to agriculture and commercial schools favored and fostered by the state legislature, end quote. So even though it's not directly, we're not directly told that Langtree's politics were, were, were this professionalization push, but we know, right, we know he's got a connection to the funding apparatus in the state legislature, and that's what they want. They want the university to be you know, have this practical use, right? Now, where does that come from? I, you know, I don't know that full history, but, you know, I do know in the progressive era, there was this push to take those universities, partially the ones that were established by land grants and, and established by these state governments to, to tie them to, you know, solving problems, you know, and we see the rise of the social sciences and a lot of that was tied to answering political questions, right? What's the best way of solving social problems or poverty or whatever it might be, you know, the conflict between labor and capital, whatever it could be, universities could play a role in informing government, right? The, I think, I know this was a big thing in Wisconsin, right, under the fallout years, was having this dialogue between the University of Wisconsin and the state capital, right? And that's part of it, but also it seems part of it as well is this relationship with capital, right, with the, you know, instead of having separate agricultural schools, you use the higher ed system to to train people in commerce or business, right? And of course that culminates in the business schools, right? And that seems to be something also pushed by the state legislatures to try to move the university away from, from pure, you know, pure, from the humanities, from, from the broad, broader liberal arts, right? And I actually think this is most strongly reflected in the character of Dr. Crane, who is like the last physicist who's actually doing pure research that's not, you know, kind of funded by businesses. It's not set towards getting a patent, right? And that, that, that's weakened. The character's harmed by this because he isn't savvy enough to, to get a patent. He doesn't even think to do that. He admits that later on in the story, that he didn't even think of getting a patent or getting in on the patent with, with Tom Altman because it's just it's something he never had to do before because his research was, I guess, pure physics. All right, let, let's talk about this lecture that we, we hear, because again, as I, as I said before, there's a scene, it's in chapter five, where the brother-in-law, or the son-in-law, sorry, goes to talk to St. Peter, but it, he's given a lecture at the time. So they kind of peek in, and we really get the question. We, we just, we start listening in, right, with his, the professor's answer. And he says, no, Miller, I don't think much of science as a phase of human development. It has given us a lot of ingenious toys. They take our attention away from the real problems, of course, and since the problems are insoluble. I suppose we ought to be grateful for distractions, but the fact is the human mind, the individual mind, has always made more interesting 
by dwelling on the old riddles, even if it makes nothing of them. Science having, hasn't given us any new amazements except for the superficial kind we get from witnessing dexterity and sleight of hand. It hasn't given us any richer pleasures as the Renaissance did, nor any new sins, not one. Indeed, it takes our old ones away. It's the laboratory, not the Lamb of God, that taketh away the sins of the world. You'll agree there is not much thrill about a physiological sin. We are better off when the prosaic matter of taking nourishment could have the magnificence of a sin. I don't think you help people by making their conduct of no importance. You impoverish them, end quote. It's actually, it's more. He goes, he kind of rants for, you know, five minutes at the end of class, and then the class ends. But um, he rants on this question for, for quite a while, even going into Moses and stuff. And it's a bit, he's kind of a bit of an old fuddy-duddy about this, but I do think it's a, it's kind of a statement against the progressive era's push to kind of make everything a scientific question, to reduce all these moral questions to things of policy and science and, and utilitarianism, right? Because, of course, that's a big part of, of, of that progressive era is to solve problems through some kind of policy, right? Um, and and that, that, that has its good sides. I'm not saying it doesn't, you know, that sometimes real social problems exist that, that have to be solved and you solve them through studying the problem and coming up with with um, with solutions. But I also think, I agree with the professor in a way that that's not the end of, of the discussion. Sometimes there's, there's deeper issues of meaning that have to be addressed, considered, um, and all that. So it's kind of a, a larger polemic against the, the, tech, the technocratic um, times that, 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 that this was written in. Um, yeah, I, I kind of want to wrap up my thoughts about the first, the first half of, of professor's, professor's house, because I think I hit most of the main points that, that I was struck by. There's a few other plot things we need to, to deal with, but there's one thing that really struck me, and it was just kind of a throwaway line, but I think it suggests a lot about America in, in the 20s. Right, because when people think of the 1920s, they think of the Jazz Age, they think of the Flappers, they probably think of, of maybe the Prohibition era, but that's always then contrasted immediately with like the speakeasy culture, right? Um, but we need to remember that that the 20s were an era of culture wars, right? Some of these, and this wasn't a singular bifurcated America. There was a lot of different culture wars being fought out in a lot of different contexts, but largely you had kind of the urban versus the rural, right? You know, when we think back and study the Great Depression, we might say, you know, the, the stock market crash caused the Great Depression. But historians now know that there was a long agrarian crisis long predating that, going back all the way to the end of, of World War One in some ways. And there was a brief kind of maybe boom afterwards and during the war. But after the war and after policies kind of went back to the pre-war gold standard and all that, it, it led to a lot of strain in the agricultural sector. Right. And that had long predated the stock market crash of, of 29. Um, right. So, but then the time when America was booming, an era of mass production, mass consumerism, baseball games, uh, the jazz age, all that stuff, you had this growing malaise in much of the, the, the what we would now call flyover country. Right. So these culture wars kind of emerge in that context. And it's when we see the rise of fundamentalism, largely in rural America. Right? It's literally when the term fundamentalism was first being, being I think, coined. Right? There was actually a, a journal called The Fundament, Fundamentalist, right? which is kind of the Christian revival. We have the KKK and other kind of white supremacist movements 
that were saying America should close its doors to immigrants, to, to foreigners, to, that are bringing in kind of a, a different culture, right? Catholicism or Judaism or Eastern European values, whatever they are. You know, we should close our door to that. Um, tensions between the, the city and the countryside, right? And Cather's not a, like, a writer. She's, I guess she, I guess she lived in cities, but, you know, she is more of the frontier. She's more, more of like a Nebraska, Midwest feel in her writing. So she appreciates America from that point of view. Um, and, you know, even with prohibition, right? Prohibition was something that urbanites seemed to hate because it interfered with their life. But the push for prohibition came, you know, from, not from the countryside, from people who, who saw this in moral or religious terms. Anyways, this is the line that, that made me think about this. Um, so Scott McGregor, the journalist, is is talking about prohibition. He's complaining about prohibition, and, and Louis says, quote, why don't you journalists tell the truth about it in print? It's a case where you could actually do something, end quote. And this is what Scott McGregor's reply is. He says, I lose my job? Not much. This country's split in two socially. I don't think it's ever coming together. It's not, it's not so hard on me. I can drink hard liquor, but you and the professor like wine and fancy stuff, end quote. So he, he quickly, quickly redirects it to just, you know, of how they're going to survive in the in the era of prohibition, but the hard hard here is he's afraid to lose his job to actually expose, to talk about something that's going to be offensive to much of the country, right? Especially in this part of the country, right? Maybe in New York you could do that, but not where we're from. It's 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 just an interesting window into the culture wars that I think were very real in the 1920s, and again it's another reflection of our own time. Where we have this deeply divided America, where those divisions are, are in some ways political, uh, some ways economic, but but also in many ways cultural, and and something that you know cultural wars are it's hard for the other side to understand. I think that's the thing. I you know one you can describe someone's economic situation and, and try to understand it and empathize with it. It's sometimes harder to understand someone else's culture uh, in worldview, even if you study it. Right? You, know, you can read about, you know, I'm in China, so I could read about filial piety all day, you know, and understand, read about Confucianism, but when I still see it, it, it doesn't, you know, it, it's something I don't, that doesn't jive with my old world, world, my own worldview. And as much as I can try to understand intellectually, it's, it's hard to fully appreciate what another culture sees in certain things. Um, and I think cultural wars are, are those are divides that are harder to, to bridge, right? Which is which is interesting is why groups like the populist, and this is going back to the 1880s, 1890s, you know, they, they made an effort to branch out to industrial workers, but they were never quite successful because it was a movement born in a certain part of America, right? That rural Midwestern Texas, Oklahoma, the Dakota, like Kansas, Nebraska, that area. That was the that was the heart of the populist movement. But it could never quite reach into the cities, even to people who may have had sympathetic goals that were in symp were sympathetic with the populace, like the, you know, the the Knights of Labor or whatever. But you know, those bridges were never quite made. Carrying on this question of dualism, and I think there's a lot of dualism in this novel between the two brothers, the or the two sons-in-law. I mean, this dualism continues, right? Uh, chapter eleven, in particular, we. Yeah, it's basically Kathleen comes in this chapter. Kathleen comes to talk to Godfrey St. Peter about Augusta's debt. I mentioned that before. Basically, she loses her life savings and bad investment, encouraged on by Marcellus. 
and they work out a deal uh, to, 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 to help her out. Basically, I think Godfrey is going to give $100, Kathleen will give $100, and then they'll talk Marcellus into giving the other 300 or something to do that. Um, and we're told that there's kind of two sisters as well. That the, the, the two sisters, well, we already know this, right? It's, it's just being told in the open. Anyway, it, the way it comes is Kathleen's upset that Rosamond kind of drove Augusta into this bad investment. And she says, it's a disgrace to us as a family not to make it up ourselves. On her own account, we ought, to, we ought to let Rosamund out. She's altogether too blind to responsibilities of that kind. In a world full of wonders, why should Augusta have to pay scrupulously for her mistakes? It's very petty of Rosie, really, right? And then she goes into a conversation about Tom Alton and her memory of Tom Alton. And then starting with this chapter, and this is chapter, I think, 11, we start to get much more thinking about Tom Alton uh, by different characters. And Kathleen thinks about him and she has her own memory of him and we're told again by the I think it's by the narrator no no actually it's told by um, by Kathleen again that there's just like there's the two sisters the family's divided between the two sisters the family's also divided in having two sides of Tom right and she says she says quote yes and now he's all turned out chemicals and dollars and cents hasn't he but not for you and me our Tom is much nicer than theirs she put on her jacket and went on the study and quickly down the steps. Her father on the landing looked after her until she disappeared. When she was gone, he still stood there motionless as if he was listening intently or trying to fasten upon some fugitive idea. Unquote. So what we're told there by Kathleen is that there's two Toms in a way. There's the Tom as, as Godfrey and Kathleen knew him and understood him in an, in an intimate way, in an emotional way, right? And then there's what... Then there's like Altland. Let's, let's call this one's Tom times the, the personal relationship. And then there's Altland, which is literally the name of the house, that the, the new house they built. They named it Altland. Right? And it's the lab. It's the estate. It's the invention. It's the money. And that's what Rosamond and Louis Marcellus have. So they got Altland, and it seems Gottfried and Kathleen have Tom. Right? Now, we don't yet know fully what took place. We just get little pieces of what that relationship was. And hopefully, I haven't read it yet, but hopefully in part two, we, when we read Tom Altman's story, we, we see more of what this is. The only really background we get is we get in one chapter, and I think it's chapter... It doesn't matter. It's it's in the it's it's towards the end of part one, where we get the, the background into Tom and how basically Tom was introduced to this to Saint Peter as a young student and how he kind of his whole the background of his career, essentially his kind of professional background and that's all laid out in a chapter here as well, but that still doesn't quite tell and explain to us what was it about Tom that was so captivating for for these characters. Um, now, there's not much more to say about the first half of this novel, The Professor's House. Uh, we get a lot of tension to the drama that really comes out between, is from Mrs. Crane. So Dr. Crane is really sick. Uh, he's having all these medical procedures. And Mrs. Crane approaches St. Peter and says, basically, you have a responsibility to your colleague to do the right thing and to get some of the Tom Oldman's money to him because he had a role in that invention and he's never seen a dime for it. And 
his response is, I agree with you. You have a right to get that money, but I'm not a lawyer. And, you know, it's, it's kind of like it's in my family, so I'm not going to touch it. And she gets all pissed off at him. So he, he says, okay. He goes and talks to Dr. Crane. And Dr. Crane says, yeah, I want, I want the money, right? And, and the St. Peter asks, like, well, were you, th you didn't think, you, you didn't want your name on the patent when you had the chance to get it. You didn't make a priority of it. So now you just want the money? And he says, yes, I know that looks bad, but, you know, that I, that's, that's what I want. And, and he basically says, you have to get a lawyer, right? He's not going to be the one who's going to interfere and go to Marcellus and, and push for this. Right. But I think it's, again, the nice thing, the interesting thing about Crane is he's not this commercially minded professor that that seems to be corrupt in academia. He's just too, too naive to even think of getting involved in patents. Tom Outland of a younger generation, he, you know, he's able to take advantage of that. Right. Um, the other major plot point on the end of this section of the novel is that the family decides to take a, a trip over the summer to to France. And it seems a good time, right? While the professor had to do a lot of his research in the summer, now his book's done. He's written the late books. Why doesn't he take a trip, you know, why not take a trip to Paris with the family? And he's sort of talked into it, but eventually he, he backs out. He decides to stay behind in, you know, in, in the house. I think he wants to spend a lot of time in his old house in the study. He decides to stay behind while the rest of the family goes off to Paris. And what's he going to do? Well, he decides he's going to edit the diary of Tom Alton. Now, the diary itself deals mostly with his kind of explorations out in the West and, and, and kind of in the Southwest, which is a location that Willa Cather studied before in, in One of Us, if you recall. Um, it's a, I did a series on Cather's earlier novels a long time ago. And back there, one of those novels, not one of ours, sorry, it's um, Song of the Lark. And in the Song of the Lark, there's a whole section of that novel that's set in that Southwest, in those like Puebla areas. And that's where Tom Olin was, and that's what this journal refers to. And he wants to edit this. But to edit it means he's going to have to tell the story of Tom Olin's life, because that's not there in the journal. And that was this kind of the segue into part two, which is going to be Tom Olin's story. And specifically, what part two of this novel is, which is, I think it's about 50 pages or so. Yeah, about 50 pages. It's titled Tom Olin's Story. This is literally a story that Tom Altman told St. Peter when he was still alive. And that's what we're going to get. Um, for that, but for, before, for that and the conclusion of the novel, which is part three called The Professor, we're going to have to, that's going to be in the next episode. So um, for now, I'm just going to say thanks for listening. Uh, if you've read The Professor's House, or if you've um, come across this, or if you're interested in any of these themes, let me know what you think. Uh, you can send me an email at 100pagescast at gmail.com. You can leave a comment below. You can probably reach me on Twitter, too. I think it's EvanLampy1 is my Twitter uh, account. Uh, but yeah, let me know what you think. And, and uh, yeah, if you have access to this novel, check it out. I think it's good, especially if you're interested in some of the... The, the issues of academia. Um, but as always, thanks for listening. I'll see you next time with the conclusion to my review, my thoughts of, of The Professor's Health by Will Cather. Thanks for Mother listening. Mother was raised away down in Texas Where the Jensen weed and the Sanders grow We'll feed you up on prickly pear foil And then send you open to old Idaho We'll be high, I hope Oh